All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes of fire shall be woken. A light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Though most of us are familiar with at least part of this quote, you've probably walked through Hobby Lobby and seen it on uh, little maps and globes, not all who wonder are lost, but only true J.R.R. Tolkien nerds can tell you its context. It comes from the Lord of the Rings. You should have expected it. It's Resurrection Day. If you're new here... We do not get by on a Sunday without some reference to Tolkien, Narnia, or some other really cool nerdy thing. (laughs) But today it's the Lord of the Rings. For those of you that have never read, notice I didn't say watch, those of you who have never read the epic trilogy, the Lord of the Rings in its most basic summary is the story of how a group of hobbits, those are little people, help overthrow a dark lord who craves unmitigated universal control over Middle-earth. Sounds very redemptive, doesn't it? Well, in the process of this great epic and this great struggle, a long-awaited king ascends his rightful throne in the White City and eventually brings the evil lord's downfall. The king's name is Strider who at the beginning of the story looks nothing more than a dirty, homeless ranger. He's not someone that you would expect to be the main redemptive character. He's homeless, he smells, he's been out in the woods. No one really thinks that this guy means much of anything. When he comes onto the scene at first, you might think you would just pass over him because he doesn't glitter like other kings. He doesn't wear a crown like other kings. He wears moldy, hole-ridden clothes from a tra- as a transient. You wouldn't expect him to be the king at the end. And yet, that's exactly the point. Redemption comes through unexpected people in unexpected ways in the Lord of the Rings. Strider, in the end, though he looks like a homeless a homeless ranger at the beginning will end up being the glorious, shining, exalted king at the end. Well, I think as we read the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, we see a very similar truth. Jesus does not glitter like other kings, does he? But he is the king. He may look like a homeless, wandering prophet, but he is not lost. He knows exactly where he is going and what he's about to do. Jesus, the Nazarene, the one that they said, does anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus, the Nazarene, whom none would have expected to be the messianic sovereign, whom everyone cast down their eyes upon, looked down their noses, and bypassed. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to give people a glimpse of what's to come. Jesus' ascension to the king's city shows that though his head is at the mo- this moment in Matthew's gospel crownless, his cross and empty tomb will soon reveal him to be the king who brings salvation, peace, and restoration. The triumphal entry shows us the unseen truth about who Jesus is and what he will do on the cross 
and gives us a glimpse of what is still to come in the future. And so as, it's as we study this brief narrative, as we look at this brief kingly ascent, that Jesus' procession into, the, into Jerusalem momentarily pulls back the curtain. Do you realize that Matthew's gospel has been leading to this moment? Matthew has spent 20 chapters leaving us in wondrous, amazing suspense as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. And now he's here. I mean, we have read chapter after chapter about Jesus's tumultuous birth when King Herod tries to kill him. We read about his faithfulness to defeat Satan and temptation in the wilderness. We read about his restorative work that began in the dark, sinful depths of Galilee. We see his symbolic healings of the lame and blind in the wilderness, which fulfills Isaiah 35's prophetic hopes. And now the king has come to the king's city, to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and stood on the Mount of Olives, you've experienced the breathtaking panorama of the city. That's where Jesus stood. The sight would have been no less breathtaking in his day with the gleaming white stones of the temple. There Jesus stood looking ahead to the city where he would die, where he would suffer unjustly. He'd carry a cross up those streets, take on the sins of you and I, and give up his life so that we could be saved. That's what Jesus knows at the moment that he stands there. But such must be done if we are to be saved. The king knows his path well. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. As we will soon see, Jesus is following a distinct prophetic anticipation. This is what's amazing about the story of Christ. You and I hardly know what's about to happen five minutes from now. You and I hardly plan what's going to happen five minutes from now. And yet the steps that Jesus takes were planned since ancient days. Jesus comes to fulfill the prophetic hope. Notice that he knows that a donkey and a colt waits for him in the village. Why? Because Zacharias said there would be. He knows that he will ride that donkey, that the owner will give the donkey, and that there will be no obstacle to him humbly riding that donkey into the city. Why? Because God is working out his sovereign plan. Now, why a donkey? I'm immature enough to ask these kinds of questions. You more mature Bible readers maybe don't care as much. But why a donkey? I'm an old farm boy, um, and I can tell you donkeys are not pleasant. And they're not what I would choose to ride into a city. If I were the king and I wanted everybody to know that I was a king, you know what I'm coming in on? I'm coming in the same way that most ancient kings came into the city. Alexander the Great, war horse, right? I mean, you're talking about this Cadillac of horses riding in all armored up and shining. You want everybody to see you in your power and glory. It was kind of a threat, you see, when, when old ancient kings rolled their uh, war horse into a foreign city, it was basically telling them, don't cross me or I'll bring my horse back and kill you. 
The only time that kings rode a donkey was in times of peace. When they wanted to declare to those that they rode in front of that they hadn't come to kill, that they hadn't come to conquer, that they hadn't come to slay. I think that's beautiful imagery there. Jesus signals that he is the one who has come to bring peace, not war, to sinners. Still more, he rides into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. What's so significant about that? Well, if you read the Bible, then you know that in 1, Corinthians, in 1 Kings 1, that the Davidic kings approach the city on their ascension from the east, from Mount of Olives, and they walk into the city that way. That's what Solomon did. That's what the Judai kings after him did. Kings come from the Mount of Olives into the city. So here comes Jesus, humbly riding on a donkey, as a signal that he has come to bring not war but peace, but also proclaiming that he is the long-awaited Davidic king who has a right to the throne. Now, what makes Jesus' actions humble? I've always struggled with this. I don't think it's very humble to mount yourself up on a donkey and proclaim yourself king. That doesn't seem very humble, now does it? But what makes this so humble? Well, he is the rightful king. There's no changing that fact. That is a detail that is solidified and as concrete as the concrete that you're now standing or sitting on. It is just true. He is the rightful king. And thus far, the leaders of Jerusalem have not given him the honor that is due. When he was born, he was given no place to sleep, no place to rest. King Herod tried to kill him. Later on in his life, Herod the Tetrarch, King Herod's son, tried to kill him again. The Pharisees call him Beelzebul, literally the devil. If I'm a king, they've just declared war. Jesus had every right, especially knowing that these same people in the crowd are going to be calling for his execution by Friday. Jesus had every right to ride up into that city on a war horse and bring nothing but judgment. His right to do so. I mean, this is the king that they have besmirched. This is the king that they have spit at. This is the king that they're plotting his life. They have committed treason. And from a divine perspective, when you realize that Jesus is God in flesh, and the thousands and thousands and thousands of years of humanity spitting in the face of God through insurrection, what would you expect a divine king in flesh to do? To come riding in on a war stallion. And yet the king humbles himself and says, I come first to bring peace. Not to slay. To save sinners. My friends, do you realize that you sit here forgiven in the grace of God because your savior came riding on a peacetime donkey and not a war horse? Do you realize that you have been saved because he is the prince who has brought us peace when we did not deserve peace? 
You know your life. You know, you know what you've done. You know the sins that nobody else knows about. You know exactly, well, maybe not exactly. You know at least a picture of what you deserve. And yet Jesus doesn't come to make war on you. He comes to bring peace, knowing everything that you have done. He is the peace-bringing prince of heaven who rides his royal donkey in peace into Jerusalem. And all this submitting himself to a death on a cross. Now the crowd obviously understood at least some of the symbolism and responded accordingly. They cut off palm branches, typically what you do when a king comes into your city. You cut off palm branches, you take off your cloaks, and you spread them before the king that's coming into your city. They did it in 2 Kings chapter 9, um, and that's typically what you do when a king comes into your city. So they're responding. They, they understand everything that is happening. They understand that Jesus is here and right now declaring himself the king. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I think we're going to spend most of our time in, in this one praise that comes from their mouth. Because it's in this that we see a glimpse of what Jesus has come to do. We see a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And we see a glimpse of what's to come from his kingly reign. My friends, I hope you're awake this morning. Because the king we read about in Matthew 21 is the king this morning. As we're going to see by the end of this sermon, this is just a glimpse of what still awaits the future. The royal procession that we read of today is all just the appetizer waiting for the entree. So I hope your hearts are stirred up to read about your king. I hope You don't find this boring. Out of everything that's been entertaining to you this week, I hope that the knowledge that your king has risen from the grave and that he reigns forever and has brought you peace brings you some sort of life and worship. Because that is what is due him. So let's look at first the glimpse of what Jesus has come to do. They cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. We've sung it in songs, Hosanna in the highest. Um, we sang it in some of the songs today, and its most basic meaning, it's a prayer of salvation. You see it in Psalm 18.25, save us, we pray. Literally in Hebrew, it's Hosanna, and that's how people cried out for salvation. The crowds see Jesus. They see him riding on the donkey. They understand Zechariah 9. They understand what has to come, and that means that Jesus coming into Jerusalem means salvation. While their connection of salvation with Jesus is ascent to the city is correct, they had no idea how true their praises were. You see, for most people, Jesus coming in as a king meant the downfall of the Romans. It meant that all the bad people that were in Jerusalem are going to come crashing down. And now the king's going to reign. He's going to set Israel up in its rightful place. Little did they know that Jesus hadn't come to bring some kind of political or military deliverance. Jesus has come to make war on the greatest tyrant that humanity has ever known. Can I ask you, do you understand what is at this moment your greatest enemy? At this moment, your greatest enemy are not political rivals. 
It's not politicians overseas. It's not tyrants. It's not armies. It's not a pandemic. Your greatest enemy, you ready for this? Your own sinful heart. It is our sin that separated us from God in the beginning. It is Adam's sin that brought death and with it hell and suffering. It is sin that underlines all the evil actions of men. It is sin that has broken your families, that has alienated you from your kids. It is sin behind it all. And until sin is dealt with, man will forever be far off from God. My friends, if we could just have that kind of perspective, then Jesus bringing salvation doesn't mean making everything in the way that we want it to be. It doesn't mean putting up our favorite political mascot in colors. No, it means saving us from our own sinful, rebellious, obstinate heart. Jesus rode into Jerusalem not to overthrow the Romans. He raises no sword against the Romans ever. But he does carry a cross to defeat your rebellion. You know, all those secret stays in the motel with the woman you shouldn't have been with? You know those secret times on the computer that you shouldn't have delved into some of those things that you were watching? You know those secret gossip sessions? That hate-filled speech? Yeah, he came to make war on that. So that he could save you. Because all that deserved hell and death and separation from God forever. So they're singing out, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us. And in their minds, they're thinking, beat back the Romans. Make us rich again. Make us powerful. Make us a political entity that all the other nations have to reckon with. And Jesus comes in and answers the prayer of Hosanna by dying on the cross for our sins. And sin is defeated. And death is broken. And Jesus saves They also give us a glimpse of Jesus' true identity. They call him the son of David, the son of David. The Bible has a very Davidic color to it. In other words, you read the Bible and it's going to come back to David in some way. David is like the king of Israel's golden era, right? You remember, most of you know the story of David and Goliath and you know that part of the story. Well, David was the king after God's own heart. He was the king that God desired to exalt to the throne and that God directly worked to put him on that throne and to uh, enthrone him as king. But David wasn't the ultimate savior. David wasn't the ultimate king. David died. But before he died in 2 Samuel 7, God promises that one of David's sons would be raised and exalted to the throne and he would reign on the throne forever. My friends, the entire book of the Old Testament from that moment on, from 2 Samuel 7 on, looks forward to a new David. You go to Ezekiel, for, for example, Israel's sin has reached a boiling point. They are going to be exiled and judged. And Ezekiel puts his hope in this coming Davidic offspring. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. 
My friends, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, bringing peace, ready to submit himself to death, and being held as the son of David, he fulfills this prophetic hope. That was spoken long before you were even thought of. He's the Davidic king, the son of David. Once again, they speak better than they knew. They rightly praise Jesus as the Messiah who has come to rule. But they failed to see the path of his enthronement. I I imagine there were probably people that were slowly trickling out of Jesus' followership. Oh, he's not heading to... Pilate's house to kick Pilate out? Oh, he's not, he's not heading to Rome? Why is he going to the temple for? And slowly, little by little, people stop following because his path's not leading to a palace or King Herod's home. And by the time we get to Golgotha, we find Jesus all by himself. Save a few women and his friend John. Because this wasn't the king they expected. The son of David can't die. The son of David shouldn't be going to a place where he's going to die like a slave. Do you realize when people talk about the cross in the ancient world, it's not just some fluffy, glorious necklace that they think about. This is a means by which people were executed. It's a curse word. If you wanted to tell someone to, you know, whatever, you tell them, I hope you get crucified. It's a cuss word in those days. It was graffitied on the wall towards people. It was obscene talk. Jesus died on that cross and on the cross bore the crown of thorns showing that he is very much the son of David. But his enthronement and his coronation comes through a a cross, not in a palace. Oh man, little did they know that when they pressed those crown of thorns on how right and true their actions were. When they put the purple robe on him and they held him as king of the Jews, how right they were and yet how wrong they were to think that that wasn't God's intended plan to put the crown on his own son's head. Jesus is the rightful king. And in this brief ride, he gives us a momentary glimpse of who he really is. As one commentator says, the time for concealment is over. He may not wear a crown or a royal robe, but the crownless Jesus is now the long-awaited king. Throughout the next week, Jesus would work and teach in the temple and in the surrounding area, and it would lead ultimately to his death. The crowds would not be able to see his kingly nature for long. They see it here, but they won't see it very much longer. He'll soon take the form of a suffering servant. But the blessed reality is, is the suffering servant never stops being the son of David. And when the suffering servant raises from the dead, we see the son of David in all of his glory and power and majesty and regality forever and ever and ever. My friends, that is our king. That is our majesty. That is our sovereign. That is the one who has come. So we've talked about what he would do. He would answer the prayer of Hosanna. He would save. We talked about who he is. He's the son of David. He's the king, very much so, even in his death. And now we talk about what's to come from the king's reign. Hosanna, 
son of David. And now they cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. My friends, can I just implore you to know your Bibles? When you read that, it comes from a Hallel, right? These, the Hallels were the, were the Psalms that are sung on the ascension to Jerusalem. Every festival, every Passover, every Feast of Tabernacles, these crowds would come from all over Israel singing these Hallels as they went. They were Psalms of ascent and their praises. And so as these pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem in Psalm 18, they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that phrase is in response to, guess what? In Psalm 18.25, Hosanna, the prayer, save us. So Psalm 18.25, Hosanna, save us, we pray, O Lord. The answer to the prayer, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So just to help you see what's going on here, the prayer and then the answer to the prayer. Save, there's the Savior. The people are singing all this and they don't even get it yet. The Savior has arrived. He's come. Their their prayers have reached a yes and amen in Psalm 18's hope. Now two things come from this. Psalm Psalm 118 acknowledges that in this blessed one, God has made his light to shine upon you. God has made his light to shine upon you. Now, in scripture, light is a, uh, is a metaphor that has a whole host of meanings. Life, blessing, goodness, resurrection, presence. You can find all those meanings and more in this metaphor for light. At its basic root, Light is the unmitigated goodness of God poured out in its full and powerful potency. Okay, I'm saying that, and you all have blank faces, because you have never yet seen in full with your own eyes the full, unmitigated goodness of God, or at least you don't understand it yet. And yet, Matthew 21 says that in Jesus, the full undiluted sweetness of God's good wine has come. Undiluted goodness. I just think wine in its purest sweet form, without water, without anything to make it taste better, just the sweet, sweet, perfect wine of God's goodness. That's what God has given in Jesus. My friends, little do we understand what has come in Christ. Little do we understand the joy. John says that in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And then he goes even further, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, cannot overwhelm it. In other words, God's goodness has come. No one can take it from you if you have Jesus. Jesus is the epitome, the solidification of God's invisible goodness. People wonder why I get so worked up about these things. And I understand, I I question, why is it so underwhelming to you that in Jesus we get God's goodness enfleshed? God's goodness enfleshed. 
His abundant kindness poured out to us for ages and ages and ages. The sheer sadness of this is that I could preach this at a graveyard and get more of a response. (laughs) God's goodness has come to you in Christ. His sweetness has washed over you, undiluted, unmitigated, undivided, and it will pour out for all the ages to come. My friends, it really is a good life for us as Christians. We may be poor, we may be broken, we may be marginalized, we may be suffering. But there's a reason why Paul says, I count all those other things as rubbish, as trash, garbage, compared to knowing Christ my Lord. Because in Christ we have goodness that the world will never know. It's not going to come through some political overthrow. It doesn't come through Jerusalem becoming the next best city in the world. It comes through death's defeat, through the darkness of Jesus' death and his resurrection. God's light will shine through to broken humanity. Now, second, this is the application, I think. When the one who comes in the name of the Lord, when he, arrive, when he arrives, the psalmist and his people are stirred up to gratitude. Listen to what they say. In Psalm 118, 26 through 29, we bless you, God. Not God bless us. We bless you, God, from the house of the Lord. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords. Now, this isn't some kind of atoning sacrifice. This is, this is a Thanksgiving sacrifice. This is something given, an offering giving, a thanks offering in response to God answering the prayer, save us, here's the Savior, now we're going to give a thanks offering. All right, and I think this is what Paul means in Romans 12 when he calls you to offer yourself up as an acceptable sacrifice. And otherwise, your whole life now is the feastal offering. Your whole life now is the thanks offering. And how you live, how you Think how you respond, how you interact with your spouse, how you raise your kids, how you do your job. All of it is the feastal offering in response to the fact that God has answered your prayer of Hosanna. We should be the most grateful people on earth. The most grateful people on earth. Laments my heart to think of how ungrateful I can be. Every day, waking up sad and depressed over what I don't have. Every day, dealing with envy and covetousness over what others have. Every day, sad and struggling. My friends, we as God's people can come out of that now. We can come out of that now. He has answered the prayers of Hosanna. And we can be grateful and thankful people. Every single one of us, every day, it's going to be a battle, isn't it? And yet, if you recall and if you remember just what God has given you in Christ... And the fact that Jesus lives and he lives forever as your high priest so that God's goodness keeps flowing, keeps flowing, and keeps coming. Lavish love, lavish goodness, lavish kindness, abundant, 
Cups never emptying, but cups overflowing. We're not talking about bank accounts. Don't lessen it with that. We're not talking about just your health. Don't lessen it with that. We're talking about the fact that you come closer and closer and closer to God Almighty, who is your life. That's what we get. A relationship that goes further up and further in every day. And for those of you that don't know, that's a Narnia reference. (laughs) Further up and further in. Now, there are some here who might not have read the rest of Matthew's gospel. Let me just tell you what's to come. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Sunday. Actually, this last Sunday would have been the day that Jesus would have done it. Today, we've been through all these events, but we decided it was best to take our time just kind of slowly slowly talking about what Jesus is doing here. He triumphantly but humbly enters Jerusalem on Sunday. Now, just as what happened when he was born and the Magi came asking about the king, the whole city is stirred up. It happened once before. The whole city is stirred up. King Herod wanted to kill him, and now it's the Pharisees. The Pharisees want him dead. Now, he'll go from here on Sunday to Monday being in the temple, And he'll continue working and teaching till Thursday he comes to his final meal with his disciples where he eats the Passover supper, the very same feastal supper that resembles what he has come to do. He has come to be that Passover lamb. He passes out the bread and the wine, inviting his disciples to eat and drink of his goodness as a symbol of their forgiveness and his death for them. That same night, right after midnight, Jesus is betrayed by one of his very dear friends. They come to the garden and they arrest him like he's a criminal, as if he's some insurrectionist that's come to kill everybody. They beat him on the way. By 9 a.m. on Friday morning, Jesus has been beaten with whips, mocked, his beard pulled out, his head bloodied. He's been through a series of kangaroo courts and joker trials. And at 9 a.m. he hangs on the cross. Still very much the same king that he was on Sunday. The king suffers from 9 a.m. to about 3 o'clock or a little after in the afternoon. And then he dies, having borne the separation from God for your sins, taken your place. They take him off the cross, and you're thinking, at least give him a royal burial. At least, you know, let somebody say something nice about the man. Well, all of his mourners are gone. There's only a couple men who pity him and want to take him down before the Sabbath so his body doesn't start to rot. So they take him and they wrap him up real hastily in a burial shroud and then they throw him in a tomb. It was a gracious gesture for sure, but not quite what he deserved, was it? And he stayed dead Friday night, all day Saturday. But then comes early morning Sunday. This king who rode into Jerusalem and proved that he is the Davidic king walked out of the tomb and proved that he was the son of David. 
My friends, the son of David lives. It's the most joyful, amazing, you catastrophe. Notice I didn't say catastrophe. Catastrophe is bad. You catastrophe is when something looks like it's bad, suddenly becomes great and amazing. It's the greatest, most sudden and amazing transition from bad to amazing, from sad to joyful, from death to life. And it all came at the hands of the son of David who will reign forever. If the triumphal entry gives us just an appetizing taste of his kingship, the empty tomb is the full entree. Eat it and be full. The triumphal entry is just the prequel. But then comes the empty tomb that puts his kingship on full display. Now, my friends, I'd be remiss if I were to say that's all there is. But it's not. The Bible says that there's much more to come. The crowd praising Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem, their waving of palm branches, And the massive celebration foreshadows a future global celebration. What we see in Matthew 21 is just a glimpse of what's to come in a future Passover feast when Jesus returns. Though he was king, Jesus died as the Passover lamb. He rose again, and because of that resurrection, he will be forever worshipped as the once crucified, now risen, forever exalted king If you want a glimpse of what this looks like, you just need to turn to Revelation 7. Revelation 7 casts our eyes using the same language that we find in Matthew 21. After this, I looked. This is John speaking, and he's looking, and he's seeing this next triumphant procession. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Let me just paraphrase that for you. People from China, from Russia, people who speak Spanish and English and every other language that you can possibly imagine. People of every shade of skin surrounding the throne in a great mosaic before the Lamb. Notice that they might all speak different languages. They might all look different, but they all wear the same white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice. Notice they don't say Hosanna because they don't need to pray that anymore. Now they say salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My friends, there's a day coming When Hosanna will not be on any of our lips because it will be unnecessary and redundant. Hosanna, Hosanna, as beautiful and amazing as it is, God has already definitively answered that in Jesus. And there will be a day when your tomb, your grave, the graves of the loved ones that trusted in Jesus will open up and we will no longer need to say Hosanna. Instead, we will say in a definitive past tense way, salvation belongs to our God for he has saved. And that'll be it. So I pray that as you read 
Matthew 21. That you'll understand that the king who is in procession in Matthew 21 is the crucified king of Matthew 27, the resurrected king of Matthew 28, and finally the exalted royal lamb of God of Revelation 7. My friends, one day we will be part of the palm branch waving, salvation singing people of God as our king sits on his throne forever and ever and ever. And so it's this resurrection day The cross is not that pretty. Jesus in Matthew 21 might not seem that royal. And yet we are reminded that all that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wonder are lost. A light from the shadow shall spring. The crownless shall again be king. Pray. Father God, we ask that you will embed in our hearts the truth that Jesus is the forever king. He was in procession in Matthew 21, crucified, buried, and then raised again. And now he sits exalted at your right hand, exercising power over all the heavens and the earth. Father, I pray for those that don't know Jesus as king right here and right now that you will answer their inward, internal, maybe even inaudible prayers for Hosanna. There are people here right now that may not have ever before been told they needed salvation, Father. I pray that you will break their hearts to see just how badly they need Hosanna. And to see that Jesus is the answer to that prayer. Prepare our hearts today as we worship our crucified, risen, and exalted King. And it's in his royal and holy name we pray. Amen.